0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito from the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. Today, I'm grateful to be joined again by Dr. Herman Obie, Senior Researcher at the Center. He's returned to the podcast to discuss the geopolitics of microchips. Thanks very much for coming back again.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Satoko.
1: Something that potentially affected many of us, especially in the first year or two of the COVID pandemic, were these microchips shortages that was reported a lot in the media. What is this state of things now?
0: Well, at the moment, there is still this ongoing kind of competition framing around the whole production of microchips. And of course, this is part of the broader Sino-US rivalry narrative, which is basically the return of industrial policy in response to Beijing's own industrial strategy, which is about uh, bringing China higher up in the high added value chain of uh, production of microchips. And so in this context, we can see that there are different kinds of microchips that have been used by different countries in Europe and in North America and East Asia. And there has been shortages as a result of the COVID-19 crisis and also the fact that people increasingly use digital tools to work. And there is this push basically to always use more and more frontier technologies like artificial intelligence and so on. And to do this, we need more microchips, especially the advanced kind of chips. And we realized during this last two years that Taiwan, for example, occupies a central place in the production of advanced microchips. And in Europe or in Japan, for example, where car industry is very important, there's been also a shortage of uh, microchips, but a different kind that is actually a bit less advanced and cheaper to produce, but still essential for maintaining the normal Production of cars. And now, with the rise of electric cars demand for the climate imperative, we can see that there is even more demand for chips, including the advanced ones. And that raises the question of uh, dependency towards Taiwan, but also China, which tries to produce a bigger share of those microchips. So, this is the, the big picture context that explains why it's now all over the media.
1: So clearly governments have an interest in controlling what they can of the global microchips industry. You've been looking in particular at policies announced by the Biden administration in the United States within the last year. What are these rules and regulations?
0: Right. So on October 7th last year, Washington basically released this export control rules and they target specifically the capacity of Chinese companies that are receiving state subsidies. And these companies have been trying to produce more and more advanced microchips of the kind that is produced so far mainly by Taiwan and South Korea. And because those microchips are essential for, for example, training artificial intelligence models or running data centers or even powering supercomputers. And this has applications, for example, in the military uh, field. It is understandable that in the US, because of its security guarantor role in world politics, there are growing concerns or fears about how Beijing could use this newfound computing power with advanced microchips with its army, its military, in order to develop more precise, for example, planning or logistics or even targeting of missiles and things like that. So there is this fear in the US and in order for this export control rules to have some teeth, so to speak, it needs the support of other countries that are playing an important role in the global supply chain of advanced chips. And those countries are mainly Taiwan and South Korea, but also for some key components to make those advanced chips. Japan and the Netherlands in Europe, and also Germany, they have important components of machines, equipments that are essential to produce these advanced chips. So Washington needs to coordinate the implementation of these export control rules if they want them to have a meaningful effect. And uh, basically what it means is that the U.S. government is returning to industrial policy strategy and they are subsidizing now the production of advanced chips in the U.S. And they do this in the name of national security and also commercial competitiveness in the mid-long run. And the export control rules, they try basically to make it more difficult for China to upgrade its capacity to produce advanced chips because they rely a lot in this process on uh, US inputs, US, uh, for example, know-how. And so the export control rules target not only the export of key components to China, but also, for example, people who are very capable in this sector are not allowed anymore to go to China to help Chinese companies to to upgrade their technology. So the idea here is to kind of keep China somewhere in the low or middle range value of the supply chain and not let it access the higher value, which is concentrated in Taiwan, South Korea. And with these new rules and and subsidies and tax breaks, you can see that there is an attempt both in the US and Europe to have also a share of this advanced chip production capacity on their own territory.
1: I wanted to clarify. You mentioned that the US, for these regulations to have any teeth, that they need the support of other countries. So, do they have the support or no?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, actually. There's been some commentaries saying that Washington has the support of the government in Japan and the Netherlands. And at the same time, there has been some statements made by the Dutch authorities, for example, recently saying that they are not going to apply these rules exactly in the same way as in the US. And the reason is, of course, that there are concerns. You know, among the companies in the Netherlands, for example, the famous Dutch equipment maker ASML, that they will lose an important market if they can't export their machines to China. And there is also the question, Mark, about uh, what does it mean in the mid-long run for European or East Asian microchip producers to abide by these U.S. rules? Because they want, of course, to have the ability to generate sufficient revenue so that they can invest this revenue in research and development for the next generation of microchips. And the supply chain is such that it has become very much dependent on research and development investment in order to keep making progress. And if this U.S. exports rules together with the Chips and Science Act, which is this package of subsidies and tax breaks to attract microchips investment on U.S. soil, then uh, there is this concern that the U.S. will have this kind of America first or protectionist approach to microchip production, which will be a disadvantage of its allies or partners. So basically... Countries like South Korea, Taiwan, or even Singapore, and European countries who are heavily involved in this microchip supply chain, they would like more coordination, more information sharing from the US before they really move along with Washington's intentions.
1: I see. That makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to Europe and the EU in particular later, but can you first tell us about how the Chinese government, how China has reacted?
0: Right yeah China first surprisingly didn't react much and then recently it started to lodge formal complaint complaint at the WTO and basically they have a point of course in saying that this is a kind of protectionist measure but then if we look at the context in China and the industry or policy in place and all the subsidies and tax breaks that Beijing itself is adopting it looks also like they are doing the same thing roughly speaking. So basically, the WTO, WTO now, all the trade rules, free trade rules are not working because of the competition. There is this kind of a paralysis of the WTO rules. So there is probably no solution in sight when it comes to this particular dispute settlement mechanism. So most likely, we will see an intensification of the competition. And then uh, China has also announced another package of large subsidies and there have been signs of key players in the microchip supply chain in China coming together to try to to weather the the shock and the consequences of the U.S. export rules. And some commentators argue that maybe China will be able to anyway upgrade its microchips production capacity by itself. Or they may be able to find also some support from third countries who try to basically have it both ways, like continue to kind of abide with the rules from Washington, but at the same time, develop a parallel kind of supply chain that could provide what China needs. But this is still very much a pending kind of question.
1: Can you speak more about Taiwan's role? You've mentioned TSMC, so that's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And you've mentioned that it produces a vast majority of advanced microchips. So obviously that reality must create a big complication for the PRC, for China. But what about Taiwan's government? What is their position?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, the the Taiwanese debate is about microchips. Policy is rarely reported in Western media. So mostly what we hear about the positioning of the, the main player in the Taiwanese microchip industry, which is the TSMC company, which is now the most highly valued company in Asia. And many people, I think, like me, have discovered this company through this recent crisis of microchip shortage. And many, I think, also were surprised how prominent it is and how it managed over a couple of decades to become the world's leading manufacturer of advanced microchips. And so Taiwan basically now occupies the top position in the frontier technology of microchips, and that gives them deep pockets to invest significantly in research and development. By the same time there is this political pressure because of the Sino-US rivalry but also growing tensions around the cross strait area between mainland China and Taiwan with Beijing escalating threats and also Washington trying to securitize the region more forcefully in order to prevent maybe another war like Russia is doing in Ukraine there are these fears that exist and the business sector is Concerned. In the US, for example, there are several companies like Apple and all the, the big chip designing companies like Qualcomm, NVIDIA and so forth, who are very worried about their high dependency on Taiwan for advanced microchips production. And so this drives also the policy discussion towards reshoring or near-shoring, or some people say French-shoring, the production of microchips closer to the US soil like North America. And in Europe, it's not, of course, the same parameters that are at play because the biggest need for microchips is for cars and the data centers and the green technology. For example, there's been a shortage of heat pump production with the effect of the war in Ukraine to accelerate the green energy transition, and it slows down the you know, the energy transition policies of the EU. And for that, there is a need to secure chips of different kinds, not just the advanced ones. And China is playing a bigger role in this production of uh, low range or mid range chips. So it makes it difficult for Europe to stay competitive with China. And for the US, Taiwan and South Korea, they are mainly focusing on those high-end advanced chips with the highest added value. And for them, the applications are are more important than in Europe because they are still having a big share in the electronics industry with Apple or the computers like Dell and and so on. And they have announced actually that they are going to diversify away from their reliance on China. This is, in a nutshell, the, the situation.
1: I see. I understand there is an EU CHIPS Act, and it's still a negotiation with member states. Can you tell us about this act and what it entails?
0: Well, this EU CHIPS Act is pretty much the equivalent of the Chips and Science Act of the US, except that the research and development part of this act is mostly funded through the existing research funding mechanism of Europe, like Horizon Europe, which is actually still under negotiation among member states. And it also includes subsidies. And here it's a bit difficult at the moment for member states to reach an agreement as fast as in the U.S. because there are existing trade rules that are kind of constraining the ability of member states to coordinate, for example, their subsidies in, in a way that feels fair and equal for all member states. And that's the dilemma in a way of the tension between the the competence of the European commission and basically the, the competence of member states. It's not a straightforward kind of coordination. There's been repeated attempts by the commission and some member states to loosen the state aid rules, as they are called in Brussels, in order to enable, especially the large member states, to basically provide larger subsidies to attract investments from the leading companies like Intel in the US and also, of course, Taiwan, TSMC. So far, there's been no real interest coming from Taiwan. Taiwan has announced investments in the US and Japan. And there is some interest in Europe also to have some investment from TSMC, but it's not yet confirmed. And Intel has expressed strong interest to invest in Germany and other parts of Europe. But Intel has quite a lot of problems in terms of catching up with TSMC in Taiwan and Samsung in South Korea. So Europe needs to be very careful not to basically invest taxpayers' money in the shape of subsidies in the wrong places. And there is, I understood, some kind of um, division among the industry experts in Europe about what kind of microchip fabrication capacity is needed for EU's industry. One obvious area where there will need to be a stronger focus to avoid risk of shortages in the future will be to invest more in the capacity for lower mid-range chips for the, the car industry or the, the green tech industry. And for that, they will have to compete with China because they are not competitive in terms of labor costs and even components. They would need to subsidize in order to, to keep the production onshore because they just don't have the ability to compete globally with the, the current cost in Europe. So this is basically where the EU Chips Act comes from. And we will see this year uh, with the Swedish presidency of the council or the next one, whether they will be able to strike consensus among member states with the commission. And then if they do, then we will see whether it goes in alignment with Washington's efforts to isolate China or whether it tries to kind of carve out some kind of autonomous space for European interests.
1: I see. So difficult to reach a consensus, but can you clarify? So what are the big goals of the EU Chips Act as as much as you can say?
0: Well, the goal in terms of concrete targets is to double the global share in production of European microchips from currently around 10% to 20% by 2030 in seven years. But it's not very clear what kind of microchips will be produced as part of this numerical target. But it's good to have some kind of you know specific target as a goal to kind of drive more ambitious industrial policy across Europe. The other also ambition, of course, is to have bigger investment in frontier areas of microchips research because we need to find, for example, more energy efficient ways of producing microchips. This is something that is often overlooked in the debate on microchips, which is the, the huge environmental and energy cost, which is also, by the way, one reason why Taiwan would need to diversify its production outside Taiwan, because they have been facing some energy shortages and with the climate crisis, we cannot really predict how the supply chain will be affected by this kind of weather or natural disasters kind of uh, crisis. So there is this. And, and then another goal is to create some uh, strong clusters, because one problem in the history of European microchips is that in the past, there were some strong clusters, for example, in uh, places like the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Italy, Austria or Germany. And because of the EU trade rules, it was very difficult to basically allocate very large subsidies like they do in the US or Korea or Taiwan. And so I think the EU could learn quite a few things already from some emerging initiatives that we can see, for example, in Japan where they created this Rapidus consortium with a range of key industry players in the field. And together with Sony Corporation, they have been focusing on one particular area of the microchip supply chain, which is the image sensors for phone, for example, smartphones. And we can see that this has attracted investment from TSMC in Taiwan and in Japan. And we need to see also more coordination across OECD countries. And and Washington needs to be a team player if they want their export control rules and their industrial policy, more broadly speaking, moving forward without creating too much tension among OECD members. And and this is probably the only way to, to make the competition with China more meaningful in the long run so that nobody feels really left behind by Washington's policies. And if the EU Chips Act enable the Commission and the member states to come together in a coherent fashion to implement an upgrade of uh, microchip production in key clusters, you know, in Germany or the Netherlands, or already as we see now in France and Italy, well, there might be some smaller or medium member states in Europe who might feel left out from these subsidies. And this, this is a concern that is shared also by some other countries like Australia or Singapore, who don't have the capacity to leverage as large subsidies as the EU and the U.S or let alone South Korea, Japan, and and Taiwan. So the challenge here is to justify to all the member states in Europe that uh, it is in their collective interest for the mid long term perspective of uh, European industry at large to have this capacity to produce the kind of chips they need for the future development of European industry. And then the other goal, of course, is to have this ability to be prepared in case there is another crisis in the future uh, Mm -hmm. with a microchip shortage. And at the moment, I understood that there are, roughly speaking, two kinds of positions about how, how to arrange this kind of preparedness. One is to have the European Commission centralizing its power by requiring member states to alert the Commission if they feel that their respective industries sense another microchip shortage crisis is about to happen. But then that will mean that the commission will have this power to make this kind of procurement of microchips around the world on behalf of the member states and kind of stockpile them to basically have the ability to to keep the European industry functioning. But some experts have uh, pointed out that this may be too ambitious because the Global supply chain of microchips is so complex and difficult to predict that it would make more sense to delegate this kind of function to the key industrial players themselves and ask them to develop this capacity for strategic oversight so that they can prepare for future shortages.
1: The industrial players in the private sectors. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for giving us insight into this very complicated topic. You've recorded several episodes, but last time you were here, you spoke about China's so-called "mask diplomacy. And once again, you've returned to talk about a very timely topic with global consequences. So thank you so much for your time again.
0: Thank you so much, Saitoko.
1: And to our listeners, thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia.
0: You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.